Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor at Maidenbower Baptist Church in Crawley in West Sussex in the southeast of the United Kingdom, and I'm a warm appreciator of Charles Spurgeon, and we're taking an opportunity to study through some of the sermons that this servant of Christ preached during his lifetime. Today we're actually moving into the second volume of the new Park Street Pulpit Sermons, beginning with the first sermon in that collection, Christ Our Passover, preached on a Sunday evening on December the 2nd, 1855, at the new Park Street Chapel itself, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. And Spurgeon just identifies a phrase in that verse, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Now, Spurgeon is often accused, and with some legitimacy at times, of over-spiritualising or super-spiritualising the passages from which he preaches. There's a chapter in his book Lectures to My Students, the addresses he gave to the young men at the pastor's college on spiritualising. And what's uh, somewhat uh, instructive and ironic about it is that you'll also then read some of Spurgeon's sermons and wonder which side of the line he himself has drawn that sermon might fall. Now, while there is a, a risk, a danger of reading too much into some portions of God's word, I think I would probably say on balance that I, and I think Spurgeon would be uh, even to the, uh, to the extreme of me on this, I would rather see Christ where he isn't than miss him where he is. Now, what do I mean by that? How can you see Christ where he isn't? What I mean is, and I'm slightly overstating the case in saying it that way, that Spurgeon is primed to see Christ in all the scriptures. It is his expectation and desire that he would see the Lord Jesus on every page. With that in mind, he is ready to, to read him in, even at those points where you might only get the, the merest hint or shade of his presence. And if Spurgeon sometimes sees, if you like, a, a, a Christ-shaped or Christ-coloured shadow in a page of scripture, then I'd be happy to say then I will at least consider that rather than quickly to dismiss it. The sermon we're looking at today doesn't fall into that uh, category of, of saying, I'm, I'm just not seeing it. In some respects, I think it's a wonderful example of how we can and should see Christ. He's using, as we've said, the text 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. And as he sometimes does, it's, it's more of a jumping off point than anything. The text as a whole says, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. For, and that's the phrase that Spurgeon picks up on, that Christ, our Passover, has indeed been sacrificed for us. And he begins with uh, a reminder to us that as we read and meditate upon the word of God, we will be astonished by it. 
we will discover a height, a depth, a length and a breadth of mighty meaning contained in its pages. And he emphasises that one of the most interesting points of the scriptures is their constant tendency to display Christ. And perhaps one of the most beautiful figures under which Christ is ever exhibited in sacred writ is the Passover Paschal Lamb. Now, that's undeniable. Christ is plainly set forth as our Passover. And so what Spurgeon is going to do to some extent here is using this verse as the lens through which he considers this topic, he's going to bring to bear other scriptures, a wider sense of what it means for Christ to be the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb. We must not just look at him as such, he says, but sit down at his table. We need to enter into these realities. And while it would require, he says, a dozen sermons to do so, uh, we're, we're simply going to look at two things. The Lord Christ and how he corresponds with the Paschal Lamb. And then to come to these two issues, having his blood sprinkled on us and feeding upon him. So this is where Spurgeon is going to explain and apply. He's going to demonstrate how Christ corresponds with the Paschal Lamb. This is a study in biblical typology, uh, the the types and shadows, the signposts and the uh, revelations of Christ in the scriptures prior to his incarnation. And he wants then to apply those to us spiritually speaking. And uh, the emphasis perhaps here is going to be then uh, for something like the Lord's table as we consider what it means to feed upon Christ by faith. So then, Christ is typified under the Paschal Lamb. And interestingly, Spurgeon just has this little aside at that point. If you're one of the seed of Abraham who's never seen Christ to be the Messiah, please pay attention. If you're a, a Jew, if you're a, a Hebrew, then please pay close attention to what I say because I want you to understand how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so he begins with the Lamb. How fine a picture of Christ, typifying him who was holy, harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners and an emblem of sacrifice, most sweetly portraying our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So just very simply zeroing in a lamb as a picture of Christ. But furthermore, a lamb without blemish. And what Spurgeon does here is very, very rapidly from point to point, he is moving from the Old Testament type or picture or shadow to the reality in Christ. The lamb of sacrifice for Passover had no disease, not the least wound. And so Christ was unblemished without a taint of sin. His soul was pure and spotless as the driven snow, white, clear, perfect, and his life the same. In him was no sin. And then as he works his way down the 12th chapter of Exodus, he's linking together the passage in 1 Corinthians with the uh, imagery of the Passover lamb in Exodus. It's a lamb without blemish, a male of the first year. Spurgeon says here is an emblem of Christ dying for us, uh, not when he was a youth, uh, but in his maturity, that he was 
in his very prime when Christ was sacrificed for us. Christ gave his all to me, which was much, so should I not give my little all to him? Should I not feel myself bound to consecrate myself entirely to his service? And so he's beginning already here to weave in these applications, not just about Christ, but to us. Now he says this is something which has excited and gratified him as he's discovered it in the sixth verse of the 12th chapter of Exodus. This lamb was to be selected four days before its sacrifice and to be kept apart. And he's got a fascinating insight here with regard to the four days before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And sometimes you might read this and you might go, oh, is that is that pushing it a little bit too far? Is that straining it just a little bit too much? Or is this just a a brilliant insight from a man who is meditating on the word of God and is seeing a parallel that we might be very slow to see. And Spurgeon says that just as the lamb separated from its fellows bleated more than ever during the four days, so Christ during those four days spoke more. And if you want to find a choice saying of Jesus, turn to the account of the last four days ministry to find it. The suggestion then is that during those four days, the lamb is separated from others. It is perhaps bleating loudly, maybe a little bit of poetic license there, and is subject to the closest scrutiny. And Spurgeon says, isn't it at least possible that the four days before Christ's own sacrificial death, he too was separated from others. He too spoke more and he too was subjected to scrutiny. So there's this readiness to uh, look at and to work out some of these fascinating possible parallels. And that's what I'm talking about when I say that Spurgeon is ready to see Christ wherever he may be. His assumption is that there's likely to be some kind of connection, even in these incidental details, because all the scriptures speak of him, we should assume to find him set forth. Here's another thing. The place where this lamb was to be killed, which peculiarly sets forth that it must be Jesus Christ. The first Passover held in Egypt, the second in the wilderness, and no more until the Israelites came to Canaan. And then you will find, he says, that the Lord no longer allowed them to slay the lamb in their own houses, but appointed a place for its celebration. In the wilderness, they'd brought their offerings to the tabernacle. They'd had no place in Egypt. But afterwards, from the 16th of Deuteronomy, you will do so in Jerusalem. And it was in Jerusalem that men ought to worship, for salvation was of the Jews. There was God's palace, there his altar smoked, and there only might the paschal lamb be killed. So was our blessed Lord led to Jerusalem. And again, while you may say, is that strictly legitimate? I think you need to understand Spurgeon's intent and approach. He is working from this principle that Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. And he's gone first to this chapter in Exodus, but now he's drawing in these other elements. And for him, at least, it seems very clear that all these different things are all identifying these particular connections, these parallels between the, the lamb of the Passover 
and Christ himself. Then the next point is the manner of his death. I think the manner in which the lamb was to be offered, he says, was so so peculiarly, distinctively sets forth the crucifixion of Christ that no other kind of death could by any means have answered all the particulars set down here. Crucifixion also involves the shedding of blood. Here again is Spurgeon. Here's the picture. Here's the shadow. Here's the type. Here's the reality. Hands and feet pierced. It has in it the idea of roasting, a long torment. So Christ in crucifixion was a long time exposed to the sun and all the other pains which crucifixion engenders. Moreover, not a bone was broken. And he says, any thoughtful Jew reading through this account of the Passover and then looking at the crucifixion must be struck by the fact that the penalty and death of the cross by which Christ suffered must have taken in all these three things. And so Spurgeon emphasizes that my faith receives great strength from the fact that I see my Saviour not only as a fulfillment of the type, but the only one. That all of these details, although they may seem only incidental, serve to confirm this conception that in Christ you have the fulfillment of all these things. And so he says, I wish I could speak better but I'm giving you the undigested thoughts. Uh, He's skimming off the surface. Something to live on during the week, for you will find this paschal lamb to be an hourly feast as well as supper, and you may feed upon it continually till you come to the mount of God where you shall see him as he is and worship him in the lamb in the midst thereof. Now he comes to more application how we derive benefit from the blood of Christ. And he's given us already then these uh, hammer blows, the parallels, drawing up this uh, likeness between the lamb of the Passover and Christ as our Passover. What's the benefit then that we have from Christ as we receive him by faith? And Spurgeon then has two elements. First, his blood sprinkled on us for our redemption. And secondly, our eating his flesh for food, regeneration and sanctification. The first aspect, he says, in which a sinner views Jesus is that of a lamb slain whose blood is sprinkled on the doorpost and on the lintel. We want to have Christ sprinkled on us. As I told you before, it is not alone the blood of Christ poured out on Calvary that saves the sinner. It is the blood of Christ sprinkled on the heart. What he's emphasizing now is the fact that it is not enough that Christ has died. It is our experimental, experiential Uh, It is our connection with Christ, our union with him, the application of his shed blood to our hearts. The fact that the blood is merely there is not in itself salvation. Christ will not only die for us in order to have us, he will bring us to himself. The blood of Christ will be sprinkled on the heart. We will come into possession of this glorious reality. And it is this that makes us clean. It is when by faith that we lay hold upon the Lord Jesus Christ that we come out of our Egypt our sinful bondage and when the judgment falls upon others it will not fall upon us 
If we have the blood on us, says Spurgeon, we shall see the angel coming, the angel of death here he means. We shall smile at him and we shall dare to come even to God's face and say, Great God, I'm clean. Through Jesus' blood, I'm clean. Have I no blood? Have I no hope? Ah, no, he smites me, he says. Eternal damnation is my horrible portion. He's driving home this great contrast between the blessing of being sprinkled with the blood of Christ, actually having the realities of his salvation applied to our souls and lacking that cleansing blood. And he's pressing home upon us the sweetness of being clean and free from judgment and the awfulness of feeling the weight of God's wrath upon us. And so he urges that it's this sprinkled blood that saves a sinner. Come to Christ, get this blood sprinkled on your soul. But more than that, and this is fascinating because I think sometimes we might if we're preachers or if we're listening to a sermon, we might imagine that that's as far as we need to go, that that, that would be perhaps the climax of the sermon, that that's the proper end and the proper point with regard to this sacrificial lamb. But Spurgeon is going to go further. And again, this is where his disposition, this is where his expectation is so rich and so sweet. When the Christian gets the blood sprinkled, that is not all he wants. And you might say, what? It's not enough to be saved from your sins? Not enough to be cleansed from your transgressions? Not enough to be washed from your iniquity? What more can you want? Spurgeon has this proper conception of union with Christ, not just at the moment of conversion, uh, the, the application of redemption at the beginning, but in its continuation. The Christian wants to come to Christ and stay with Christ. The believer, the sinner who knows himself in need of a saviour, not only wants to be made clean, but he wants something to feed upon. And this, Spurgeon says, is a sweet thought. Jesus Christ is not only a saviour for sinners, but he is food for them after they are saved. The paschal lamb by faith we eat, we live on it. Not only was the blood of this lamb sprinkled on the door of the Israelites in Egypt, but they also ate of that lamb that had been sacrificed. Oh dear hearer, says Spurgeon, you may think you have the blood sprinkled, you may think you are just, but if you do not live on Christ as well as by Christ, you will never be saved by the paschal lamb. This is his emphasis, and it's a very... Uh, proper and, and helpful, if fine, distinction, not just living on by Christ, but on Christ, coming to him and clinging to him. Some say we know nothing of this. Of course you don't, he says. When Jesus Christ said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, there were some who said, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? And his emphasis is then that it is Christ himself, who continues to be the salvation, the sanctification, the assurance, the confidence of every child of God. He gives a few examples. Some of you, my friends, who are true Christians, live too much on your changing frames and feelings, on your experiences and evidences. Now, that is all wrong. All wrong. 
to assume that we should judge of our standing with God on the basis of our frames and feelings, our experiences and evidences. He's saying, in effect, that you might be an unstable person or you might go through a particular trial and you might at times be cast down. And too often we conclude that when we don't feel the way that we think we should, therefore we are not genuinely converted. I I had a situation not long ago where somebody came to me and uh, and I was asking them about their spiritual experience and, and whether or not they were truly converted. And their their response was, well, I I just don't feel like a Christian. I said, well, that's interesting. Tell me, how does a Christian feel? What? Tell me, how does a Christian feel? You're you're confident that that Christians feel a certain way and you seem very certain that you don't feel like that. So you must know how they feel if you don't feel like that. And this uh, this person didn't know really what to say. Why? Because they were living on their own changing frames and feelings. And Spurgeon says, that's like going to the tabernacle to eat a priest's coat. When a man lives on Christ's righteousness, it's the same as eating Christ's dress. When you live on your frames and feelings, that's like the child of God living on some tokens received in the sanctuary that were never meant for food, but only to comfort him a little. What the Christian lives on is not Christ's righteousness, but Christ. Not Christ's pardon, but Christ. On Christ he lives daily, on nearness to Christ. It's the person, the whole person. And it is by taking all that he is that we find our confidence and assurance. Oh, he says, I do love Christ preaching. And we know that from experience. It is not the doctrine of justification that does my heart good. It is Christ the justifier. You see what he's saying here? Not that he's dismissing the righteousness of Christ. Not that he's dismissing the pardon of Christ. But he says it's not pardon that so much makes the Christian's heart rejoice as Christ the pardoner. Not election that I love, half so much as being chosen in Christ before worlds began. Yes, not the final perseverance that I love so much as the thought that in Christ my life is hid and that since he gives unto his sheep eternal life, they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of his hand. The emphasis then is not so much on doctrine about Christ, but the Christ upon whom the truth rests. We should never uh, perhaps be, or let's not say never, we need to be so careful about simply talking about grace as if it's some kind of standalone commodity. No, it is God's grace in Christ Jesus. It is Christ who saves and all these glorious realities hang upon him. And so it is to Christ that we come to eat the paschal lamb and nothing else. If you live on anything but your saviour, says Christ, you are like one who seeks to live on some weed growing in the desert instead of eating the manna that comes down from heaven. Jesus is the manna. In Jesus, as well as by Jesus, we live. Do you see what he's saying? To come to and cling to Christ and Christ alone, not even to rest so much upon the blessings as upon the benefactor, not just to treasure the gifts, 
but to treasure the giver, to come to him in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, this treasure chest in which God has stored up all the good things of salvation. And now a typical Spurgeonic conclusion, are you hoping to be saved? How? How do you want to be saved? Some people think by going to church on Sunday. Some think that they're righteous because they they, they would write on their, their census document in, in the United Kingdom that they are Church of England. But it's not just about our tick box mentality, not because you're a good person, not because you belong to a certain church. No, he goes back to this very principle there in Egypt at the beginning. This is as if a Jew had said, child, bring me the blood and then bring me something else and we'll mix it together. And Spurgeon says, if you'd mixed anything with the blood of the lamb, then the angel of death would have smitten you as well as anyone else. For it is blood, 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 blood that saves. Not blood mixed with the water of our poor works, but blood, 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 blood and nothing else. And you can feel the force of that as it must have rung out at the end of Spurgeon's sermon. If this is all so, if Christ is the Passover lamb, if we need his blood and righteousness, if we need to come to him and keep with him, if we need to be saved by him and in him, then nothing else can be brought alongside him if we are to know peace with God. Have precious blood sprinkled upon you, my hearers, he says. Trust in precious blood. Let your hope be in a salvation sealed with an atonement of precious blood, and you are saved. But having no blood, or having blood mixed with anything else, thou art damned as thou art alive. For the angel shall slay thee, however good and righteous thou mayest be. Go home then and think of this. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And so he comes back to his text. He's not really departed from it. He hasn't much referred to it, to be honest, but it has been in his mind the whole time. What does it mean for us to have Christ as our Passover? And so, drawing from the whole revelation, bringing to bear all this imagery, giving us this uh, picture portrait, this uh, sketch of Christ as we see him in the Paschal Lamb. He then presses home the vital necessity of having Christ as our Passover sacrificed for us and entering into that once and for all, now and continually, coming to Christ, keeping in Christ and trusting in no one and nothing but Christ in order to have peace with God and to go on enjoying the smile of our Father in heaven. I hope it's been instructive for us to think about how Spurgeon handles the Old Testament in the light of the new. And perhaps even if you say, well, I'm still not sure I could go as far as he does, I trust this will help us to ask where Christ is on every page of our Bibles. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. 
It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.